Hello, sweet dogs. We are new to Who. Whether you don't know the old and only the new, or just need an entry into classic Doctor Who, we are the chaps with suggestions for you. I'm Stephen. I'm Dan. And I'm Colin. Welcome. So today we are covering the Tomb of the Cybermen, a grandiose 60s spectacular. Would you gentlemen agree? A rollicking fun time. I'm, I'm excited that we're doing this one. This is fantastic. Mm. Uh, one of the real classics of 60s Doctor Who, black and white Doctor Who. The first story of season five... Broadcast from the 2nd of September to the 23rd of September 1967. <laughs> Today is the 50th anniversary of the first episode of Tomb of the Sun. Going yeah. to air 2nd of September. Oh, wow. Here you Beautiful go. Life, so that was yeah. unintentional. <laughs> nice. So, writers. Okay, so it's Kip Pedler and Jerry Davis who returned mm. to provide another Cyberman tale. They're the ones who actually devised the Cyberman way back in 1966. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're back here um, with... Probably the definitive Cyberman story ever. It's a big call. I think definitely I think, of its definitely of its time. I, I think, think it's def- up there. Kit Pedler and Jerry Davis also wrote the Tenth Planet together, didn't they? Yeah, definitely. And, and there's, is there one in between? There's the Moonbase. Moon moon the Moonbase, uh, which was written by so Kit Pedler, I think, but not Jerry Davis. So Kit Pedler is a very interesting guy, isn't he? <laughs> uh, it's actually Doctor Kit Pedler. Oh. Not only was he a science fiction author. But he was also a parapsychologist. Psychologist. <laughs> he was slammed by the scientific community mm. for his views on psychokinesis and remote viewing. <laughs> so this is so, this is a book he printed in like 1981, and it was basically dismissed out of hand. Yeah, but as science fiction, perhaps, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which you know places him in good stead as a writer for Doctor Who. I think that is really where he shines because he also wrote some classics. He wrote The War Machines. Ah, oh, yeah, I do the like Moon that Base, one. The Tenth Planet with Jerry Davis, as we've already mentioned, and also The Wheel in space and the invasion he did write the invasion, did you do the invasion? Oh. Yeah. that's probably that's your favorite Cyberman story. it is my favorite Cyberman yeah. story yeah one of the best ones he was also now I don't know how accurate this is but I did read that he was also cited as Doctor Who's unofficial scientific advisor at the so, time yeah. at the time so yeah. work that one out yeah. is that just because he was a doctor <laughs> in parapsychology I don't know oh man I wonder what stuff he managed to slip in there yeah oh dear what have you done now his partner in crime Jerry Davis uh, he also wrote the the original script for Revenge of the Cybermen before Robert Holmes got yeah, his hands so on it. As we're talking well. that's a lot later though. That's that's Tom Baker's first season, isn't it? It is, yeah, much later on. Further on down the track in nineteen eighty nine, he uh, tried to take over production of Doctor Who with Terry Nation. Hey, Unsuccessfully. An attempted coup? Yes. <laughs> To uh, try to appeal to the American market. Oh, uh, you don't want to do anything with Terry Nation in, on your side, isn't no, it? I just thought I'd throw it in there. Nice. <laughs> well, lots of fun facts there. Okay, okay. moving on from our writers, uh, director? It's Morris Barry. Morris Barry. So he comes back to direct Sidemen again, having done the aforementioned Moonbase, which is mm. um, an early Pat Trouton adventure. Yes. Um, and I think he does a really good job here, particularly with the, the film sequences. I both, would agree. Um, the outdoor stuff. Mm. and the Ealing Studio stuff, which we'll talk about later. He also directed The Dominators. Uh, How do we feel? Dominators. (laughs) It's it's clearly the worst Troughton. (laughs) Maybe the worst 60s story. I enjoyed the book. I had the levelization when I was a kid. I thought it was fun. He also appeared as the scientist Tolland in 1979's Creature from the Pit. Oh, oh I'm hitting you guys with yeah, all yeah, of yeah. that today. Research. This is great. And you've got Peter Bryant as the producer. Did you yes. know anything about Peter Bryant? Well, he's the fourth producer for Doctor Who. Yeah. And There's actually, back then, quite his last accomplishment for Doctor Who before he left was actually casting John Pertwee as the Doctor oh. in 1969. Bloody so John. we have a lot to thank him for. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he also oversees maybe one of the most fondly remembered 
um, whether that's right or not, seasons of Doctor Who in season five. Right. Uh, colloquially known as the monster yeah. season. Mm. Um, and because so much of this, um, certainly in times past, has been missing, it's really sort of taken on a mythic status um, and Tomb of the Cybermen, which we know was actually lost for quite some time before it appeared in yeah, 1992. Yeah, sweet dogs. If you are, if you don't know about this, lots of 60s Doctor Who is actually lost and gone forever because back in the day they used to wipe the videotapes they recorded them on because they didn't think they'd ever really well, it, need to save them. It doesn't them. sound as callous as, as, as it might to, um, to us in, in modern times. I think what you have is, is a couple of factors. One... Uh, the BBC, heavily unionised at the time, um, meant that um, there were concerns about actors going jobless in repeats. Oh. So, um, And then the other thing is that there wasn't actually a way to sort of get these out into people's homes on VCR. Yeah, or they didn't have no, that's right. Yeah, it like was that. pretty much transmission and then that was but it. But they, so, they couldn't foresee it either, I suppose. Well, that's why they... Yeah, and they couldn't make any money off it. So, uh, you know, here's this burgeoning library that no one's ever going to see again. and that, save some tape. Yeah, <laughs> going to have to re- wipe those and use them again for other shows. And so, that's what happened. So decades of... So decades go by and there's tons of stuff is lost and lost mm. and then but they always had the audio recordings well some people made audio recordings at the time in yes. britain but i think i think a lot of the in terms of the actual videotape itself it only comes back to us because there are um other countries to which mm. um the serials mm. were sold and that's they sort right. of sit on dusty shelves or in basements of Amazing. mormon churches mm. in hong kong yeah and they're eventually where... returned <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, right. that's where tomb of the cybermen was found in hong kong <laughs> that's crazy great. yeah and yeah and stuff's turned up at church fates people mm-hmm. have had unmarked rusty film cans from their dad's attic or something yeah. and they have no idea what was on them so all cl- lots of all classic crew fans are all sort of secretly waiting and hoping that yeah. something in a basement and in canada will come out <laughs> okay. we'll every get, now and then and maybe we we'll get, get to see galaxy fourth finally <laughs> <laughs> but we do we get we get things still occasionally what when did web of fear no it was, it was, was longer ago than that it was 2013 it was just before oh my God. the actual 50th and that's when web of fear and um enemy of the world that's turned right. back up was that 2013 yeah and they find 50th year i know it's mm, crazy a little bit time. convenient, isn't it? <laughs> Steve, script editor for Tomb of the Cybermen. It's, it's Victor Pemberton um, who wrote Fury from the Deep, uh, yes. which is another story uh, in season five. And he novelised it too, didn't he? He did. It's considered one of the great novelizations. But I think, you know, he sort of oversees this period, um, which is largely, you know, as we said, the monster period, but is also characterised in a, a base under siege sort of genre, which mm. we'll talk about later. Victor Pemberton also had a non-speaking role as a scientist in the moon base. Oh. Yeah, hitting you guys with the facts all day long. <laughs> be hitting us with these the whole, the whole time. I'm I could just start it. making them up. Yeah. Victor Pemberton was actually Crispin Glover's dad. So, <laughs> <laughs> well played. Uh, should we move on to our TARDIS team? Oh yes, please. Uh, Steve's on the edge of his seat <laughs> here. I can't. Steve, Steve, Steve up now. Uh, would you like to begin proceedings by talking about Patrick Troughton? Okay, Patrick Troughton is wonderful, and uh, he's he's really suffered from the fact that there are so many missing episodes from his tenure. But again, he's one of those actors, actors who uh, just seems to be uh, always doing something with the part. We mentioned back in Earthshock that Davison was quite similar. Mm. Uh, And it's no coincidence, actually, that um, Matt Smith also wears the bow tie. Uh, the story goes that about you know late <laughs> late at night, uh, uh, Matt Smith watching Tomb of the Cybermen, you know, frantically mm. calls up uh, Stephen Moffat and says, "This is it. This is exactly how I want to play the Doctor," and it's uh, that sort of very mischievous 
trickster kind of character that we have with Troughton that sort of sets the template, I think, for, for many other Doctors. Tom Baker comes after him in a similar fashion yeah, as well. Yeah, even Definitely. Sylvester McCoy said that yeah. Troughton was his the only Doctor he ever really watched. And they, yeah. he plays that, it quite oh, similarly, like absolutely. sort of a cosmic clown. And we'll yeah. see later on when we, when we get to it, there's parallels between the seventh Doctor's character and, and the way in which the second Doctor sort of comes across in this story mm. as a bit of an art manipulator of events. Troughton also uh, was the first Doctor to do the three years rule wasn't he like he would and yeah. never do it for more than three years or you'll yeah. be typecast forever kind yeah of thing. which yeah. which is interesting because I, th- I think patrick trout probably would have stayed more than the three years if it wasn't for the fact that he was so burnt out by the end of it mm. um they were recording for or filming for about 40 weeks of the year um and often to a tight schedule to the point where i think at one point they were actually filming one week before the episodes went out oh so there's a lot of pressure on the Jeez. production team so you have to right. remember also tim the cyberman comes at the close of a recording block that starts with the Tenth Planet, back in 1966. Oh, wow. So these are massively long, grueling schedules. Yeah. Um, so the t- okay. So the Tenth Planet was the start of the same block. Yeah. So we got the regeneration mm-hmm. from Hartnell to Trout, and then, That's then right. oh wow, and then so we they, just keep going. So they did oh. the, the last episode of the season before, and then now the first episode of the next season. Yep. And a whole season in between. That's a huge block. Mm. Well, yeah, it's, it's it's essentially one full year's worth of production um, before he he actually got a break, mm. and I think that's what sort of coloured his three years and I'm out kind of thing. But he did actually um, repeat that advice to Peter Davison when he yeah. first took on the role in yeah. 1981. So maybe three years is the general sort of lifespan of a Doctor. We've seen that mm. with um, time and time again, really. Yeah, Peter Capaldi most recently, three seasons and yeah. out. Yeah, I'm quite biased towards Patrick Troughton, um, mainly because as I think I mentioned last month. Tomb of the Sidemen was actually the very first official BBC VHS tape that I ever owned. <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, it was very early on in my uh, discovery of Doctor Who, classic Doctor Who. It's probably my least watched Doctor I mean, not just because uh, there's lots of um, his stories are missing. I just, it just, it's just a quirk of how it turned out that I, yeah, I haven't watched as many of his as I watched of the others, but I always mm. enjoy it. He's really he's very quirky and funny and very clever. I envy yeah. that you've got those adventures ahead of you because yeah. I've seen pretty much all of them. Mm. And I think there's a lot to be said, yeah, definitely for the fact that he's, he's seen as the actor's actor who played the mm. part, uh, certainly in the classic series. Yeah. Well, it's when, when they were doing the first regeneration and I think... Um, everyone's worried mm. what's, who's going to play him and is it going to be is the show going to bomb and I think as soon as I think I remember him re- reading that as soon as they knew it was Troughton everyone was like oh it'll be fine it's going to be mm. he's great and thanks to the casting I think we were able to keep going yeah thanks yeah. well thanks to the first success of this one I think yeah. it probably locked it in yeah. if, if this one had stuffed it up we yeah, might not have any more Doctor Who yeah I think that's true um, his companions as well. Ah, the yes. long-standing Jamie McCrimmon, played <laughs> by Fraser Hines. I, would you say that this is a, a rare example of a male companion in Doctor Who? Yeah, we were talking about before. There's not typically a lots of uh, male companions. I mean, early on during Hartnell and Troughton, it's probably where they're, they're the most. But after mm. that, you can count them on one hand. How yeah. do we feel about the um, the chemistry between Pat Troughton and uh, Fraser Hines? Well, they were great friends, and that really comes across. Yeah. Um, As it often does in Doctor Who. We've talked yeah. about that before. Because it's, it's even down to the little things like uh, holding each other's hand before they walk into the tomb. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, that, that was all on-set stuff. Yeah. That was never written into the script. That yeah. was something they just did. Uh, Troughton and Hines planned that just before they started they filming mm-hmm. because right. they knew there wouldn't be enough time to reshoot it. Yeah. So they would get left in. <laughs> Yeah. Can I ask, uh, Steve, if you know, um, now, J- Jamie's first story was The Highlanders. Yeah. Does it exist? 
No, he doesn't exist. Okay. He's a Highlander, a Scot from uh, 1746 in the aftermath of the Battle of Culloden, a, a mm. brutal and bloody battle in which the English basically slaughtered a whole bunch of Scottish people. And it's interesting because he comes from a time that obviously predates technology and and, and science and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, and it's, it's worth bearing in mind that this is a character who undergoes significant sort of development and, and change mm. and um, you know, sort of comes under the Doctor's tutelage, much like Ace, I suppose, yes. in, in remembrance of the Daleks. Not necessarily having an, educa- an education or whatever, but having like a natural brightness and intelligence about them that allows them to sort of mm. take on board and, you know, uh, roll with the punches. Yeah. So how long was, how long was Fraser Hines in the show then? Well, he started in, in Pat's second ever story, The Highlanders. Wow. And yeah. right the way, all the way through to his last one. No way. Yeah, yeah. Was it, it was the second, ep- second story ever. So yeah. it's pretty much the whole time. I forgot that. His yeah. whole Doctor. And at one point that's he amazing. sort of thought about moving on, but he was like, no, I'll just stay until Pat goes. And that's how... Oh, that's, that's sweet. Yeah. It's really that's sweet. They're so yeah. such good friends. I think you get a little bit of that with New Who as well, with, um, you know, Moffat leaving, Capaldi decides to leave. Uh, yeah. Michelle Gomez decides to leave sure. once Capaldi leaves. It's it's kind of nice. Like, we did this together. It doesn't feel right anymore if th- they're not there. Yeah, so. that happens again with John Pertwee too, where yeah. there's a sort of a culmination where, you know, the production team moves on, the actors move on at the same time. Mm. Yeah, mm. I think that's true. Ooh, we're getting ahead Sorry, of ourselves Jim. here. <laughs> and one other uh, member of our TARDIS team, guys. Yeah. Mm. Deborah Watling as Victoria Waterfield. Mm. Yeah, so th- this is a character who sort of flows on from the end of last season and the last story, Evil of the mm. Daleks, where her father's involved in the Daleks and meets an untimely mm. demise. Uh, and as a 16-year-old, is sort of orphaned and the Doctor and Jamie take her on board the TARDIS. I'm actually quite grateful um, in hindsight just the fact that we have those little bits of continuity for mm. Doctor Who that's now lost. We've already mentioned sure. that we've lost some stories there. Mm. Evil of the Daleks... Deborah's first story is one of those stories that's gone, unfortunately. Most of it is, yeah. yeah. And so she's she's from Victorian, from the Victorian era, right? And they've yeah. called her Victoria. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do I do like her character, but in this story, I feel like they don't give her a lot to do. They mm. they do write her mm-hmm. quite weak and and afraid. This is the first time she's been in a time machine. It's the first time that she's stepped out of a time machine into another world. So you've got that to go with it. Um, I don't know. At times she was painted as a bit weak, but then at other times she's kind of, she's standing up. She stands up to Captain. She stands up to, mm. we're getting into She does story. blow away a Cybermat. That was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. But she, yeah, I, I don't know if they give her a lot to do. And mm. she is probably the least used companion out of the two. Also very sad news is that uh, Deborah Watling, the yeah. actress, did actually pass away on the 21st of July this year. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so uh, on that note, I think I'd like to dedicate this episode of our podcast to Deborah Watling. That's sure. a nice idea. Okay. Steve, if you were to <laughs> describe Tomb of the Cybermen in a one-sentence high concept... What would it be? Would you, this, you've memorised this one because you I have, have your notes with you this time. Yeah, it's five words. It's Doctor Who meets the mummy. <laughs> I thought there was going to be pressure, but you're still living. I'm uh, impressed. Not every, one every time. sweat. Not one bullet of sweat. <laughs> Do you know what, guys? I find this a bit strange. Uh, the whole time we've been talking, I haven't seen any evidence of Clive. Yeah, he's been quiet. I don't know where he's. And also, Dan, I've just noticed a bank of switches and levers next to you. Yeah, I don't know what they do, but I'm going to. Uh, maybe I'll just pull this one and what, see what all, happens. You're not going to pull all of them. Right? Yeah, just pull this one and this. Whoa, what's oh, yeah, that okay. noise? I, there's a hatch opening up. Uh, Dan, move your chair. Wait. Hey, uh, Clive, you're coming out of a hatch. Look no. out, I'm a Cyberman. <laughs> 
I had no idea he was under there. Uh, we'll just keep going and uh, we'll see what happens. We'll stuff him back in the hatch later. <laughs> you belong to me. You shall be like me. And uh, Yes, of course, as everybody knows at home by now, Clive, of course, plays our spoiler music. He comes in at the right time just before we're going to spoil any of the story's events for those who haven't listened to it. And uh, I have no idea when that's going to happen, but... <laughs> Thank you, Clive. Our space adventure-inspired spoiler music there. Uh, uh, moving into the story. So we can talk spoilers now. You, we certainly can. Everyone dies. Yeah. <laughs> Holy jeez. So for those of you uh, who have not watched Tomb of the Cybermen <laughs> Who yet, are you? Why would you do that? Go and watch two hours of Doctor Who and come back. Two hours of very entertaining yeah. Doctor Who yeah, yeah. and come back to us. I did a refresher last night and it flew by. Like, it just flew past. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Great fun. It's a fun story. Mm. It's obviously like kind of like uh, derivative of like adventure serials of the time. Yeah. Like a little bit of Hammer Horror, like the mummy, you know, like yeah, uh, yeah. there's a team going into an ancient tomb to unearth mm. an ancient evil. It's yeah. great. It's really fun. And I'd like to start proceedings. Sure. By talking a little bit about the opening shot of the actual story. Beautifully directed. I think it's lovely. And it's quite reminiscent, I think, of Unearthly Child. We talked a little bit about Barbara mm. walking in. And it was her POV into the TARDIS. Yeah, the, the door was open. That yeah. was, of course, the first time we ever saw the TARDIS console mm. room in Doctor Who. But this time again, walking in through the doors, showing Victoria the TARDIS for the first time. Great way to start the story, I thought. Mm. And a great way to start the season. A season mm. which was designed user-friendly or sales-friendly to the US market in particular. Mm. Yeah. Having seen a lot of uh, serials, particularly the Avengers on ITV, make that jump across um, you know, quite lucratively, I suppose. So I think it's, it's, a, it's another one of those not complete reboots, but a, a soft reboot, mm. much like we saw with Terror of the Autons, where yes. the format of the show is, is not just rejigged, but perhaps tightened up a little bit. Mm. And we have a, a template for the series going ahead. In this case, for season five, it's the base under the siege model, which mm. is essentially the Doctor arrives at an instalment, where it's a scientific base or a tomb, or whatever the case is, and there's a threat either inside or outside um, that uh, wants to get in. So and I think that's very much set up from the start here. But it's a beautiful, soft moment because mm. obviously it's more of an introduction to the pre- um, premise of the TARDIS and who the Doctor is and, mm. introdu- and an introduction to the characters mm. as well. Yeah, I think I've already mentioned, but I am really thankful for that little bit of continuity we get from yeah. Evil of the Daleks as well in that scene and, too. And it's just a nice breather, like a nice little mm. family home moment before yeah. we get straight into the story. And why, why do they go to the planet? Why, why, do they, why do they land there? I like to think of The Doctor's Wife, the Matt Smith episode, where mm. uh, there's that wonderful line where he says, uh, you never took me where I, I yeah. wanted to go. And, it's, and, she, and she, the, the embodiment of the TARDIS, yeah. says, no, but I took you where you needed, needed to go. To and I think that's, mm. That's, mm. Uh, that's how I like to retcon it. Um, Even without retconning, it's great. It's just like, let's mm. get out, put your coat on, we're going to go for a walk, see what's out there. Yes, we land on what is soon to be revealed as the planet Telos. And on that note, I'd like to make a quarry disclaimer. <laughs> Ooh, quarry time. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's the quarry is Gerard's Cross Sand and Ballast Company at Wopsy's Wood. Mm. <laughs> and isn't it a beauty? It is an absolute <laughs> stunner. So much sand. On a scale of Doctor Who quarries, I'd rate it quite close to the top, partially because we only see it we don't get to see that we don't see that much of it which is mm. good shouldn't overuse a quarry less is more mm. yeah less is more with it when you're talking about it, and it actually did kind of work well as an alien planet i i liked it um, i just love that i think i've said it already i love that shot um mm. at the start where, t- where people are calling out to toberman mm. and uh it tracks past his feet they over see- the edge and you get to see the whole team in, in the yeah. ravine it's so good there's something horrible to him like get down bit. get your fat head down or something horrible <laughs> like really? that. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. hey toberman Get that big head down! 
That's the start of the uh, Get that big BBC casual racism. That's the start of our, yeah. uh, another part of our series on BBC's <laughs> casual racism in Doctor yeah, Who. We'll absolutely. get to that in a bit. But Dan, you're right. Morris Barry's direction over the cliff face, and we get, it, it is really, really cool. I was because yeah. I, w- I haven't watched it for a long time, and I um, whizzed through it last night, and it was it shocked me straight away. I was like, that was awesome. That's an awesome really shot. Great. Yeah, great absolutely. Music. Yeah, I'd like to mention also the detonation of the rock face uh, by our excavation team. Good explosion. Fantastic explosion. <laughs> We're talking black and white Doctor Who, so before the color stuff, and that explosion to me was more realistic than a lot of that stuff that came later on in the 80s and the 70s and stuff. Mm. And then you just get that, that great shot of the tomb doors, yeah. like amongst all the smoke and rubble. Also a very precise explosion because it cut out a perfectly rectangular hole in front of those doors. <laughs> full credit to their technology. I love those doors. I love the... Mm. I just want to... I love the, the production design and the sets on this one because yeah. I love... You mean the, that mosaic of like tiles and stuff? Yeah, I love the like, cyber logo head anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They stick it on everything and I love it. I think yeah, it's yeah, great. It's so but cool. I really like the entrance to the tomb. They've got the two sort of... The, the full-figured sort of Cybermen well, motifs. It's, I guess it's kind of like, like what they put in an Egyptian tomb, like a, yeah. like a hieroglyph or... Yeah. Just yeah. the painting of what it is on the side. Mm. It looks great and it adds mm. to that sort of mysterious tomb feel, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah sure. It. It's got a history to it. It yeah. gives you the idea of something that's ancient and foreboding. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah it's ab- the whole once they get in there, the whole the whole tomb set. We move from Gerard's Cross Sand and Ballast Company to Studio D. In Lime Grove, let's use, which is for that initial mm. um, antechamber. They built the actual exterior of the doors there too, didn't they? That's as right, well yeah. as the Even interiors and like a- None of it feels cramped mm. or cheap. Like it often does in Doctor Who, like uh, it doesn't feel no, it like doesn't. A You're quite set. right, yeah. and even down in the uh, down in the actual ice tombs as well, oh, very that's spacious. A big, a big yeah, because that's yeah. the Ealing Films. I, I don't know whether we yeah. should talk about this now or mm. later on, but but we have a sensational set mm. for the tombs. It looks fancy. It's fancy for the time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, sweet dorks, mm. but tasteful too. Yeah, the honeycomb. Yeah, and the, the plastic does look so great. Obviously, I think it's probably something that gets done when when budgets would allow. They've gone and built a model, and then they've also gone and built a for scale model as well of these tombs yeah, too to match it. And like, so when they defrost the the tombs, yeah, the, the, you know, with a hairdryer and time lapse, <laughs> I assume um, that's the model. And then um, I just I don't want to say it's seamless because you know it's not, but I didn't even notice until the Cybermen started moving that it was actually the set. And I was like, oh, they built the set, of course they did. Yeah. One of the one of the great things they did in the production design is when they're climbing down through the hatch. Yeah. There's the ladder with the um the half mm-hmm. semicircle yep. steps. Yeah. And then so when you go to the the set of the Cybermen and tombs the honeycomb that motif is the, the steps are along the side yeah. so you get immediately a sense of scale that it's mm. quite huge and mm-hmm. i thought that was really clever i think though the 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 cutting between those three locations of you know the quarry lime grove and then downstairs into mm. into ealing is is pretty seamless for the most part like mm. i had to watch it a good few times yeah. to see where um the different studios were sort of interspliced together yeah yeah it's, it's well paced as well you go from outside and then mm-hmm. they they gather this themselves on yeah. the top floor they sort of explore a little they're walking around they inexplicably press buttons and levers <laughs> while they're not all together why, why do they do that i don't know man but there's always the archaeologists there's always a professor saying the first rule of archaeological work is that nothing must be touched until it's been described and recorded that was Viner. Uh, it's one of the the guy who's in the target room starts just starts and with Jamie just starts pre- pressing buttons. Yeah, he's like, yeah, <laughs> he's just, trying to work out the hypnosis free. And, then, and yeah. for his pain, yeah, well, that's what you get, mate. <laughs> when you when you start pressing buttons in an ancient tomb, you don't understand. Shot in the back by a cyber laser. I think it's probably a good time to actually start yeah. talking about our big. supporting cast. I like this cast. It's a big cast. Yeah, it's really yeah it but certainly I think is. For the most part, it's clear, it's mostly clearly defined. There's there's a couple of odd characters, one mm. of whom doesn't even get a name. But the two factions 
doesn't seem to be the logicians who have infiltrated the the expedition. So this is Klieg and Kaftan. And Toberman. Mm. Yeah, so I mean Klieg... Played by George Pastel. Uh, so I think before this he's done James Bond. He's done a few James Bonds, I think. Yeah, he's and appeared he... in the Avengers as well. Right, He's right. a familiar face on, on British he television. Yeah, he often mm. plays Greeks or Turks or Cypriots. Yeah, yeah well, he's bad guys. himself, isn't Yeah, he? that's yeah. I think he's really, really good. Yeah. I really, yeah, really, really liked him. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, his companion, Kafton, played by Shirley Cooklin. Oh, also, by the way, Peter yes. Bryant's wife? Yes, Peter Bryant's wife. <laughs> oh. So Jerry Davis actually wrote this role for her. He wrote the role for the producer's wife. <laughs> Thankfully, she was pretty good, too. Yeah. Uh, what I found odd, though, is she, I don't think she seemed to do much after this. She doesn't even have a wiki link. So. Oh. oh, no, I did notice that. I was trying to track down any... I just did a casual wiki link, a wiki, yeah. um, Wikipedia browser. I couldn't find yeah. anything on it. Did you find was... anything about her being Crispin Glover's mum? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I feel sure that's true. I feel sure it is. I mean, I, think... <laughs> but sure, I thought she was really good. She was great. I love how um, I like how impatient and almost disgusted she is with Victoria's kind of weakness. Yeah, she's yeah. sort of like, oh, I can't deal with. From this. the onset, she thinks that Victoria's a soft touch, doesn't she? She's like, I'll take the girl. Yeah. Like, you know, it's sort of yeah. like, yeah, yeah, I'll get rid of this. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for this character. Mm. I'm going to get into that a little bit later on, but sure. I think she's positively Shakespearean in mm. her <laughs> in her role in this narrative. I like how she well, she starts out when Cleeg gets up from Superman and he's shaken because he's seen them, and she's like, why? We're like, we've got to do this plan, and he's like, you haven't seen them, you don't know. That's exactly yeah. the scene that I was going to talk oh, about. Sorry. I'm going to talk about Let's it do now. It. Do it now. Yeah, it's she's Kafton. she's leading the Beth. Yeah. She's the power behind the throne. She's the one, you know, compelling Klieg to go through and, uh, you know, commit this uh, this dirty deed and get the job done. That's true. And, you know, finalise their plans and, and not lose his nerve. Yeah, even after she meets them and she's shaken, she's mm. still determined to move move mm. through and that, that that sort of energizes Klieg and by the end he's totally um yeah yeah, yeah it, it's her certainty and, and sort of so. fortitude that, that makes them uh, continue with the plan. Yeah. Mm. And, um, they're, uh, and uh, now they're faithful I don't want to say servant, and I don't want to say slave. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, the wonderful Toberman, played by Roy Stewart. Who we, we've saw before, right? well, later mm. in um, Terror of the Audience. Yeah, playing so a similar, similar character, un- unfortunately. Man. This is a guy who, he's a Jamaican immigrant. He, mm-hmm. Ran, mm-hmm. Uh, he ran a restaurant, he ran a gym. That's right. And he ran a Caribbean club um, for... Uh, all the way up until his death at age 83. Wow. This is a man, he's an immigrant, came to England, worked his butt off yeah. um, to get where he was. And I, I have to assume that it must have found it galling to keep playing mm. these, mm. Yeah. these characters, these mute strongmen. He's monosyllabic. Even at the, at the end, they give him the noble savage role where he um, saves exactly them at the end. Right. Which is, mm. yeah. So what's really weird about the writing of the character Toberman is that he was originally meant to be deaf. Yeah. And then for some odd oh. reason... They took it out of the script and they said, no, just make him mute and dumb. But even if he was it, deaf, is that meant to make the way his character appears like more acceptable? Because I don't think it does. In it's terms no, of blood lost. I have no idea why, why. I mean, it didn't seem that the whole deaf thing came into any sort of context really. of the story. Maybe there was something planned for it later. Well, but they do, they do shout at him at the end, like when Troughton's... Well, he's half Cybermaned mm. and Troughton's trying to explain to him mm. that... Um, that, uh, well, he's actually he says he try he appeals to Toberman to tr- get him to help them by saying they want to enslave you they mm. want to enslave us mm. uh, and he has to yell at him maybe that's something to do with the deafness I don't know I think it also makes um, a bit more sense in terms of the opening shot where they they call out to Toberman who doesn't realise that they're about to blow the um, 
the doors to, oh, yeah, okay. to the tomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he's a deaf character at that point, that would make a lot more sense. And it would yeah. also explain, I think, the monosyllabic part of I his guess. character as well, where, he, you know, if he's, if he's been but deaf seems since like, birth. Yeah, but it just seems like a strange excuse to write yeah, a is. monosyllabic yeah, mute. And, and again, it's that sort of casual BBC racism. And then the racism continues slightly less <laughs> offensively, where um, your bad mm. guys, Cuffton and Cleek, both foreign. Yes. They both have foreign accents. Mm. 50 pounds for the first man to open the doors. It's not like shining white. British slash Ameri- uh, terrible American accented. Craig has the accent. Captain appears to be sort of made up in the darker sort of shade of makeup as mm. well. Mm. It's mm. Uh, it's unfortunate, and it sort of seems to sort of lump the East together as into yeah. one. There's a reference in the novelisation, isn't there, Cole, yeah. to her being Arabic? Yeah, they get referred to as Turks, and it's a real passing reference. But yeah. um, I don't know. It's almost like the BBC either had no idea. Mm. what they were talking about or just didn't care what they yeah. were talking about <laughs> yeah and i think i think jerry davis and kip peddler are sort of tarred with this brush of, of that sort mm. of carelessness in, mm. in the past mm. i mean we have those lazy stereotypes in the 10th planet and yes. the moon base of yes. the european ethnicities like the italian guy <laughs> this is another yeah, adventure altogether right. but yeah it seems to recur here but in a more insidious way yeah so yeah so that's our installment for this episode of his <laughs> casual racism thanks for joining us <laughs> Can we move on, please, uh, to uh, Cyril Shapps as oh, Viner? Man. Now, the award for panicky scientist yeah. <laughs> often goes to Cyril Shapps. <laughs> yeah, he's really good. Yeah. yeah, here he is again playing the part, isn't he? Uh, which we see again in Ambassadors of Death, which I know, Cole, is one of your oh, favourites. Yeah, absolutely one of my... Cole, you love Ambassadors, so you I like do. Cyril Shapps in that one too? Yeah, well, he's playing the same character. <laughs> it's like, it's watching us. It'll get us all. We've got to leave. All right, Viner. Maybe this one is a descendant of that. <laughs> <laughs> far, far future. I don't know. But I think Cyril Shapps, though, he really um, brings that quality. You know, it's sort of like a, a, a small, slight figure of a man. Uh, he loves yes. his work. He's yeah. very dedicated to his work. Oh, yeah. it's always about the work. Maybe. maybe <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's fidgety, fidgety, um, uh, anxious. I often hate the nervous, the nervous science, scientist yeah. character who's definitely going to die. Yeah, um, he is. You know it. I often hate that character, but he, I love him as the cowardly viner I, I just wrote cowardly viner and drew a love heart around it <laughs> he's so great he's wonderful we had, we had it last month with city of death as well uh, yeah professor Kerensky. That's yeah right. absolutely yeah and once again fidgety nervous never sweaty it's for the good of the work it's for the good of the and science i, I yeah. think you know that's what she uh shaps is uh, there's a beautiful story of him when he was away um filming um you know whether it was tim of the sideman or something else i can't quite remember but he would ring his wife up every night to tell her what he's oh, having for dinner oh, what <laughs> yeah Oh, that's really sweet. What so a it's like a, man. Well, they've sort of toasted the potatoes. <laughs> I wish you could taste them, darling, because oh, I can really just sweet. imagine it in that voice. <laughs> he was also in Planet of the Spiders and the Androids of Tara. Yeah, oh, yeah. Androids of Tara is a great story, yeah. Mm. Professor Parry, played by Aubrey Richards. Well, I, I remember him most clearly from The Eucharist File, one of my favourite 60s films in which he plays the kidnapped uh, government oh. scientist, um, Professor Radcliffe. Uh, and here he is playing another professor again, this time Parry. Mm, only uh, a couple of years after Ippocris too. Yeah, yeah, 65 Ippocris was, 67. Typecast as a generic um, professor good-natured professor yeah. who wants mm. to do good. Yeah. Yeah, Professor Sensible. I mean, he's yeah, he doesn't have yeah, but he doesn't have a lot to do other than be like. Yeah, mm. I don't know though. I think he's there because he he serves the purpose of not dying. You know, Viner, he's going to die. Yeah, he's just too fidgety definitely. and nervous. You know, he's going to meet his demise at the hands Absolutely. of the Cybermen. This is the the professor, the archaeologist who will survive the expedition. He's the one who's given it a bit of context. He's been wanting to come here for a long time, mm. and then he will leave and tell the story. Mm. So yes. uh, probably tell people not to go. Not to yet. Avoid <laughs> tell us. Uh, should we move on to? 
our American spaceship crew. American, we're doing <laughs> yeah, we're doing uh, quotation figures here. Thunderbirds, American. Yeah. Don't, they, don't they sound Thunderbirds? Transatlantic here. Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Look, I can't afford to waste any more time with you guys, but I'll give it to you just once more. All right. I guess it's like a way to make the actual crew of the spaceship instead of using working class dudes. Mm. They've brought in um, big jawed Americans. To fly the ship, they just—they yeah. just all they do is fly the ship for them. Yeah, and they're engineers, of course, as well. Yeah, so well, they're, they're strong. They're, and they're gruff, and they're you yeah. know they're intelligent they can too. Fix something um, like covered in on grease. A, and, honestly, you know. they all sound like they're in a Frankie Avalon surfing musical from the fifties, <laughs> <50s. laughs> Bikini Beach or something. It's, it's just crazy. You Say guys now, don't, fella. Look, you yeah. guys don't know what you're doing <laughs> hey, down look, here. Look, you guys, I don't have time to mess around. <laughs> We've got to <laughs> fix the ship. Get out of here. <laughs> um, let, so let's talk a little bit on that note about our Captain Hopper. Well, it's not exactly peaches back on the ship. Huh. Yeah, he's great. George Rubicek. Right? Yeah. So he's Austrian, right? Yes. He's, well, he was he's born grown in Austria. Up, grown up in the UK. I think he grew so up. So he's definitely UK. not American. Mm. No. But okay. a voice actor, predominantly. Mm. Isn't that right? Yes. Was he, he in Thunderbirds? He sounds like he might I Because I, he sounded so Thunderbirdsy that yeah. I actually looked him up and okay. found out that he wasn't in Thunderbirds. Oh, okay. But he... He did have some small. He did have a lot of small roles. He was in briefly in Star Wars and a couple of Bond movies. Yeah. Oh, okay. But my favorite, um, my favorite credit for him is that he uh, did some voice acting in the classic Monkey. <laughs> oh, wow. He, oh and he, wow! And he also wow. directed dubbing for it later in his life. Um, That's and great. so, if you were an Australian kid growing mm. up in the eighties or nineties, absolutely. When Doctor Who wasn't on, yeah, Monkey was in the morning. Yeah. You would watch yeah. Monkey. Yeah. They call it Monkey Magic in Australia. Yeah, we called it Monkey well, Magic. Well, yeah. people did, but it's called Monkey. <laughs> That's uh, that's in our soon to be released monkey podcast. Yeah, coming out. It's called Funky. Yeah, Funky Monkey. <laughs> Let's just erase all of that. So you think for a dialect coach, his American accent would be better? Sorry, yes. sorry, George. Right, we're gonna stop. We're gonna stop making fun of his accent now. Yeah. Well, can we make fun of one more accent? <laughs> sure. That's uh, the character of Jim, played by Clive Morrison. Jim. Okay, I've got it. The only reason I'm bringing him up, actually, oh, yeah. is that he played the deputy chief caretaker in Paradise Towers yeah. in 1987. Oh, He's okay. in lots of TV, um, British TV. Yeah. And then there's that. A uh, poor, unfortunate character who doesn't even get a name. Oh, no name. Doorman. Mm. Doorman. <laughs> Let's Doorman. call him Doorman. Yeah. Because uh, for the measly sum of 50 pounds, 50, he gives his life to... 50 space mm. pounds. <laughs> Maybe 50 space pound buys you half a galaxy. Mm. I, I don't, don't know. know. It's I... funny you should say space pounds, because in the novelization by Jerry Davis, they often look at their space-time watches <laughs> oh to check the time. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Let's imagine more than once. watch. Why it's would... a space-time watch, man. Cool. Early days. On, he dies on the doors. And yeah. the, I love the... the the, um, the burn marks that spread out from the, across yeah, the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite, I was like, is that a mistake? I love that sort of mosaic sort of, of tiles that are sort of built onto the mm. doors. It's, it's this part of the set dressing we're talking about here. But yeah, but when he, when he gets electrocuted and you get those sort of black scorch mm. marks. And they, they spread sort of, out. Yeah, they cobweb out. For awesome. a long, I don't know yeah. whether the tiles were there for that purpose or whether it just was a cool effect. Mm. I don't know, but it does look great. I was surprised that they had the forethought to make the doors quite so thick. I thought I thought they were going to, like, Toberman was going to pull these doors open and they'd be like really flimsy polystyrene. Cardboard. Well, they yeah. kind of were. <laughs> but they were big. No, no, they were uh, big and chunky. Yeah, oh, they yeah, were they great. depth there. <laughs> and it's unusually large as a, as a supporting uh, cast, <laughs> I think really because it kind of evokes Agatha Christie's um, and then there were none, except in this case, it's not that every single one of them are killed. It's you don't really know who's going to live, who's going to who's going to sure. um, die, and uh, it just sort of adds to the suspense. Mm. I think, and, and a few of them do get picked off too, don't they? Yeah, yeah. quite half. a few of them die, and half of them at least by their own because by their own stupidity. You got <laughs> yeah. Doorman, yeah, um, and then you've Green. got Hayden, who's just fiddling with switches. In the gun room with uh, yeah, Jamie. Yeah. yeah, let's just press the buttons. End uh, of episode one, he gets yeah. killed, doesn't oh, he? Man. Gets himself so, shot. And then, so later on, um, Professor Parry says they're going to cancel the expedition. And he's like, you were right. I should have listened to you. Uh, we've got a lack of men. We need more men, more, more planning and more mm. equipment. Um, 
two men he, he wants to cancel it because two men died for reckless reckless stupidity like it's not that there was a lack of planning it's that you picked the wrong guys no, no, but he but he feels a responsibility to them he's the reason they're out there I as well guess, so uh, I, I got i kind of like that about parry True. i know you don't like parry no i don't i don't dislike parry i just think they didn't give him that much sure. he's just got a quiet sadness to him he spends the whole time like should we be here should we leave uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like yep he just doesn't want to do the wrong thing. You're right, you're right. And some of them do want to do the wrong thing. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I refuse to heed their warnings, and the result is that two men have died. I'm and sorry, but we must before. leave at the first available conjunction. We'll take back all we can for further study, of course, but that is my decision, and that is what we must do. So many of them died. It was quite violent. Mm. Um, very violent, in fact. Yeah, well, Kip Pedler actually had to defend his script uh, on BBC Radio because of some oh. of the public outcry oh. to do with um, the actual violence in the story after it went to air. I mean, like, people are smoking yeah, they as put, they get shot. They put mm. smoke like, inside their clothes like yeah, when Kafton yeah. dies. So, you know, it's coming out of her tunic. Like. End result is they're basically being cooked. Yeah. Uh, by laser fire. Um, there's also some pretty grotesque Cyberman stuff. We've got smoke pouring out of a Cyberman's helmet at one <clears> point. Later yeah. on, when Toberman rips the chest unit off a Cyberman that he's battling with oh, in the yeah. tombs, there's all this disgusting that foam. Looks foam. Really like, it looks really It looks good. great. Yeah. Coupled with uh, that sort of gurgling that the Cyberman's mm-hmm. making as well. It mm-hmm. is actually quite horrific. Very similar, we talked in Earthshock the a couple of months back. death screams. The death yeah. screams of the Cyberman. Again, I prefer the Cyberman voices in Tomb of the Cyberman. That sort of droney I do quite radio. Now you belong to us. Whenever you've got a Doctor Who monster that's got a voice that takes it takes a long time for them mm. to say things, that really irritates me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With these guys, it's great. Yeah. yeah, it's a really yeah, raspy I mean, metallic sound. There's something to be said for David Banks' sort of hammy performance. We love it. It's, it's really cool. interesting yeah, it's that this is the voice that. Um, Nick Briggs, who does the voices for both the Cybermen and the Daleks models, mm. uh, the new new Who um, Cybermen voice on yeah. um, the Peter Hawkins version from yeah. the '60s, rather than you know the David Banks from the '80s. Mm. You know, it's much more <laughs> mechanical, much more you know computational, yeah. less hammy, yeah. less hammy, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's it's not a not an accident that they bring that back. Mm. Um, yeah, sure. very fa- cold, very matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. They, very, um, they just cement their stamp straight away with the first line that suddenly yes. says it's just so great you belong yeah. to us just you four, shall be like us yeah, yeah. four yeah. words that he, yeah four words that he says immediately you know mm. that they're in control it was they're awesome. in charge they're terrifying mm. I just thought it was a great moment yeah me too yeah. and it's probably one of the reasons why I do, really do think that the Cybermen haven't worked as well as they've worked here mm. but maybe in a couple of other instances uh, yeah we were talking about this privately before like so often the Cyberman stories they're mm. done really terribly mm. or they're characterised really badly or confused yeah. and like, there's not yeah. actually that many Cyberman stories over classic Who. I always think there's lots and lots but there's not actually that many no. and not all not, no, not many gaps. of them yeah. not many of them are that uh, great mm. but this one on the whole for the most part they're menacing and scary uh, and the cyber controller, I think, is like that's come- Michael Gilgareth, yeah. who's a huge man, and he comes back again to play other monsters like uh, the giant He's a robot. Big boy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's that bit at the start where they find the uh, reinvigoration chamber or whatever, mm. and Victoria can't even get into it because it's yeah. so huge. That's, that's right. It. Yeah. And I was like, are they really going to find an actor big enough to fill that? And no, they, they did. Yeah, it was yeah great. they certainly it, did. It helps having a cone on your head. As yeah. well. Can we talk a little bit about the design of the Cybermen for this story? We've got those weird sort of pointy three finger hands, kind yeah. of frog hands. I like mm. the three fingers. Those versus the cricket gloves. What works? Got, you've got the thing, the the the, um, the, pl- the PVC pipes along the arms. Yeah, the end in the, the vacuum cleaner. The end uh, in golf the, balls. the little the, the little ping pongy golf yeah. balls. Yeah, with, yeah, with holes drilled in them. I guess maybe they were brand new space age tech in 1967. 
also we spoke in Earthshock a little bit about the helmet design, how we had the human chins. I love how the mouth moves. Me too. In this yeah, one, yeah. so great. It, it really works that well with that black box yeah. around a, a sort of slit that opens and closes. As yeah, they, yeah as they it speak. worked well with the droney sort of computational sort of voice that yeah. they have in this story I, as well. And you're right. I, I mean, I like the '87 men too because they're the ones that I sort of grew up with. And sure. I know, they know they're not. I know they're not particularly classic, but mm. these ones are great. I, I like going back to the Cybermen where it's just a, a slit and two empty. Mm. dark sure. terrifying idols yeah. mm. it's just so mm. passive and mm. like so mm. i guess in the early days they were going to give um the cyber controller a black helmet which is something that comes in later in doctor who sure. but so. this time around they chose to have the dome they're sort of the brain dome they're sort of uh it's great <laughs> it love, looks awesome i think it looks great yeah. i do think it looks like a testicle but <laughs> i really <laughs> like it does it does it, it doesn't like it doesn't like glow when he speaks or anything does it I no no it so. doesn't no. glow when he speaks it's great, but it's, it's it was cool. meant to oh. yeah they, they had a battery oh, really? i was just kidding really yeah they they had a battery. Have you seen the back of the cyber yeah. controller's head? Michael Kagara's sort of prop. Yeah. There's a sort of uh, boxy kind of thing on mm-hmm. the back of the neck of the head. I wasn't no. wondering there's what to, that was. There's meant to be a battery there that lights <laughs> it up. It didn't work on that's the That's sorry, 60 BBC. Yeah. Yeah. lights up when he talks. I was just kidding, but that's, wow, that's amazing. But it didn't work. And I'm just going to say on the record right now, love the chest units in this story. The cyber chest units. They mm. look awesome. Yeah. They're, they're really, not really cool. too enormously weird like they're in No, the and they're not too planet. cheap looking like sort of plasticky spray painted. Yeah. Yeah. I like Sticky how the tape. cyber controller doesn't have one. I, yeah. I, yeah. I just think that each of the um, Cybermen incarnations sort of... Um, I, don't, I don't really have a problem with their design. I think I, yeah. all of them sort of stand up, each for different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, the Tenth Planet ones, which we've seen quite recently in the world, is not... Uh, the What was it? World Enough and Time. World Enough and Time. So, yeah, we get the Mondasians ah, back in uh, the World Enough and Time and in uh, the Doctor Falls from the end of Capaldi's last season. But I think, you know, these various incarnations of Cybermen all sort of point to, like, a cyber evolution, even though sure. they're mechanical rather than biological there is that sort of continual repro- uh, process of refinement and evolution yeah, in the machine. Definitely. They are part biological. They're they cyborgs. Are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's very fitting that you should mention that, Steve, because it's uh, kind of the underlying plot here of the Cybermen themselves in mm-hmm. Tomb of the Cybermen. They've constructed this sort of like uh, booby-trap-ridden tomb mm-hmm. to be discovered in. Well, don't you see? They only wanted superior intellects. That's why they made the traps so complicated. We knew that somebody like you would come to our planet someday. Yes, and we've done exactly as you calculated, haven't we? Because they only want the most intelligent the humanoids yes. to actually be able to resurrect mm. them. And once they get resurrected, then they uh, ultimately meet their fates as the next evolution of the Cybermen, yeah. the, next, I, uh, the next race. What I wanted, what the, all they really want is to survive. Yeah. Oh, yes. You get that right at the end with the doors of his, the Cyber Controller saying, I the repetition, will, we must survive. We will survive. No, we will, we will, survive. We will, we will survive. survive. And yeah. that's perfect because it's, it's great. It, again, even though they are machines or, bi- you know, mostly yeah. machine, machine rather than biology, there's the preservation of that sort of... Um, instinct. Yeah, the animal mm. instinct of we will survive. The, 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 the Our species will continue. Even at the point where the controller is the last hope of them surviving and his battery is so low yeah. The energy levels are low. We will survive. You'll help us because we will survive. That is the only outcome mm. for them. There's no other option. I love when he smashed out of the regeneration. Oh, yeah. He did make uh, it. He did make it look quite cheap. It was. <laughs> it looked very cheap. It did, yeah. but I love yeah. that because I was like, he's just going to break out. Please smash out of it, and he yeah. smashed out of it. It yeah. looked so good. There was a big thing in the um, in the novelization about Jamie tying the knots yeah. of the cables around <laughs> yeah, the doors. I saw that. I was... Pointless. I don't, uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I really do find them genuinely chilling, even down to little things like the way one of them is banging on the hatch. Oh, and the hatch yeah. closes. And the, the metal's just denting mm-hmm. in, and you 
every time I see it, I've seen this story countless times, I still am on the edge of my seat. I'm still like, oh, they're going to get in. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's so good. And, the, and the, there's other bits that they don't usually do with Cybermen, the conversion thing. Like, I don't think... Mm. Cybermen try to convert people into Cybermen very often in classic It's You said it was in the 10th planet. They... Well, yeah, there's a reference in the 10th planet mm. where it's like, you will all become like us. You know, they'll take away all our emotions and fears, etc. Yeah. Um, and then you were saying also, it wasn't until... Uh, until the 80s when they... When they I think you're right, Attack of the Cybermen, yeah. yeah. But in between, they don't really do it. They're, in between, they've got a lot of different mm. motives, like they want to destroy a yeah. planet of gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, they want, to, they want to do a few other things, um, but they usually seem quite confused. Earthshock, is... they're not really doing it, are they? Earthshock, they're just trying take over the earth they're not actually interested in converting yeah. anyone yeah. yeah and so um i really like it they have all these different lines like mm. to struggle is futile mm. uh, and you mm. will be like us mm. they say that a lot yeah. cybermen don't pretty... promise one of my favorite lines from this one cybermen what? don't promise open the tombs but you promised <laughs> <laughs> who says cybermen don't promise that's a the great cyber line. controller what cybermen do not promise such ideas have no value. I totally miss that. He's like, they're always so surprised as well. Yeah, I know yeah. that we know the Cybermen so that we know. Okay, How many yeah. times does Cleg and Captain have to be almost killed by a Cyberman <laughs> to uh, realise they cannot bargain with a Cyberman? <laughs> I know. So to start with, I mean, they're, they've been entombed for 500 years. Mm-hmm. And it's, oh, this, this is one of the things I really like about the story, that they've placed something very futuristic. They've mm. placed it in the very distant past. They've sort sure. of reversed it. And that, well, that, but by necessity, that means that we're in the very, very distant future. Mm. Because they've been encased, they've been entombed for 500 years. Has everyone forgotten about them? Obviously, Parry knows so. who they no. are. But no one knows if they're still around. And so the tomb mm. of the Cybermen is the actual legend. It's the idea, and that's why they're out there trying to find it in the first place. Because what we all have time and again in Doctor Who, and actually throughout mythology and literature as well, is this idea that a mortal man, or in mm. this case, Klee, can control or in some way bargain. Make a bargain. <laughs> we see it, well, when we do the invasion, we see it with a, a character called Tobias Fawn. And, and we did Earthshot. Shock, and Ridgeway. we've already seen it in Earthshock. Ridgeway, you fool. <laughs> yeah. But it's a recurring theme, and it's a recurring reminder of our own uh, limitations, I suppose, as humanity, that we, we shouldn't be seeking to exert control over these uh, fiendish machines to take mm. over the world. It's not our place. It's actually something that comes to us from ancient Greece as well. There's a number of heroes who commit hubristic acts who are then punished by the gods. Mm. And here again, um, you know, we have it in Klieg. He reaches out to, uh, to the Cybermen, I suppose, as a way to control the universe and be the master. Yes. It was logical, the supreme moment of my life, he says. Um, but of course, that's not what happens. There, there isn't uh, any chance, no matter how no smart way. you possibly are, mm. that you are going to control this brute force called the Cybermen. Mm. So yeah, so at first he want, he expects them to help him because they'll be grateful. <laughs> and this, after he gets away with his life, amazing, fantastic, get out of there. No, he goes he goes back in and he see, he wants to control them with one laser gun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which I, yeah. forever too. Yeah, yeah. like is he going to run out of juice or is he going to hold it on them forever? Kleeg's plot makes no sense at all. He's, it's got to be said, but it's he's mad. I love it. Triton distracts him by just saying, "Oh, you're going to be like the all-powerful. Yeah. That's a great idea." And he's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. "He's so yeah. he's so he's supposed to be a logician, like I suppose yeah, yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah. yes. No country, no person would dare to have a single thought that was not your own, Eric Kleeg's own conception of the of the way of life." Brilliant. Yes. Yes, you're right. Master of the world. Well, now I know you're mad. I just wanted to make sure. 
So I laughed out loud. That's really funny. Um, I thought he was just trying to distract him long enough for the Cybermen to come up behind him. Oh, that too. They were taking a long time, and I was like, man, he's going to have to go on with that, do this for a long time. (laughs) It was a great setup. It highlights that Klieg is not of sound mind. This Mm. is someone who is power mad and and quite literally insane. And Mm. yeah, I I mean, I don't think that Klieg's plot needs to make sense as a result. It Mm. actually just needs to set him up to be someone who's a lunatic. And in the meantime, we get this very sort of atmospheric, moody, very creepy sort of story that plays out. Yeah, I could figure it because the pacing of the story is quite good like you've got your entry into the tomb yeah they're sort of figuring out what's happening mm. Some, someone dies this in danger then they get through that amazing wonderful hatch i yeah, love that it's yeah. a great device and then they go down into the real tomb and then mm. but there's also mm. lots of there's a few quiet scenes that bring oh, it back down yeah. to earth like well there's that one that everyone there's a great one with um doctor. the doctor and um victoria uh while everyone else is asleep this is beautiful. it's such a great moment is it not yeah, yeah. I want to say that with this particular scene, what we have is like the spirit of Doctor Who coming out again. In amongst all the chaos and the mayhem, there's a, there's a moment when everyone is asleep where these two characters are able to talk to one another and, you know, he asks, mm. starts off by asking, are you happy with us, Victoria? Mm. Um, and, of course, she's just come from an adventure where her father has died. Um, and it's a beautiful sort of evocation of, of memory and family and how yeah, they sleep, they in, sleep my in my mind. mind. That's really- you know, the memory of him won't always be a sad one. I think it will. You can't understand being so ancient. Eh? I mean old. Oh. You probably can't remember your family. Oh, yes, I can when I want to. And that's the point, really. I have to really want to, to bring them back in front of my eyes. The rest of the time, they they sleep in my mind. That is so gorgeous. And then, of course, once we've had that, then we can return back to the plot. Mm. But, yeah, it's 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 a gorgeous um, moment. And it sort of throws, again, a little bit of light of, uh, on, the, on the Doctor as well. Mm. Uh, it's in that first scene that you were talking about, Cole, earlier. Mm. It's revealed that he's 450 years old. Yeah. Mm. Um, and his so longevity. Like, yeah. <laughs> they have a few cracks yeah. about it, don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, she's like, well, maybe you need your rest. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really sweet, isn't and it? And it's one of the few moments well, where Victoria is treated quite well in the story. Yeah. <laughs> What's that great line that he says to her? Like, Our lives are different to anybody else's. That's the exciting thing. Nobody in the universe can do what we're doing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And that's one of the times where Victoria's actually treated quite well, because the rest of the time, people say quite nasty things to her. Mm. Especially Hopper. Hopper's yeah. really quite dismissive of Victoria. Yeah, when they're trying to reopen the hatch, and yeah. she's like, she goes, I think it was this one. He's like, she thinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's Hopper as well who comes back with a horrific... Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, how would you know, honey? <laughs> yeah. Oh, she one? says, who'd be a, who'd who'd, be a woman? Who'd yeah. be a woman? Because she never gets to do anything. Oh, poor old Victoria. She oh. does get to shoot a Cyberman, and she does beat Clark Cuffton. She beats a Cyberman as it's coming out of the hatch. That was pretty cool. And she She's saves smashing Ka- it over the head. That's true. Oh, she that saves Cuffton yeah. from the Cyberman. I think that scene is also really um, evocative, I suppose, because I think, you know, with this um, base under siege uh, genre of mm-hmm. Doctor Who, it's about the implicit nature of the threat that's probably as scary, if not more scary, than the actual threat. Yeah. And so, you know, when we have that, that, that moment where the, the Cyberman rears out of yeah. the, the hatch and sort of grabs onto the Doctor, mm-hmm. you know, and looks for him, you know, like he's about to sort of drag him back down into the depths. It's those flashes that really sort of highlight their true sort of horror because, you know, the rest of the time they're sort of skulking in shadows or entombed mm. in ice or whatever mm. the case is. They're, they're a threat removed and so that when they do emerge like this, there are these incredibly dramatic and, and, mm. and, and horrific uh, moments of body horror. And they know it, I think, because they do the, the hatch closing on a Cyberman thing. They do it twice yeah, with the hatch. Yeah. And then they do it at the end with the doors, which is a great bit. Yeah. 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 Can we talk about the score? 
Uh, obviously, there's one particular uh, piece of music called Space Adventure, which yeah. we, we all want to talk about. <laughs> We've by, mentioned it in past. It's really have, called Space Adventure. It's, it's, it's called Space called Adventure. Awesome. It's yeah. by Martin Slaven. It's um, when I was watching episode one, just at the first scene on uh, in the quarry. There's some really great little bits of music, and I was thinking to myself, like, who did these? Because I've only ever really read about Space Adventure before. Like, who did these parts? It's pretty great. I looked it up. There's no assigned composer to Doctor Who at this stage. In this particular instance, it's the director, Morris Barry, working with the sound department, Mm -hmm. and they cobbled together this sort of atmosphere from library tracks and radiophonics, and it works so well. It's so great. Like, it's it's almost Delia Derbyshire stuff. Like, it's Mm. it's really, really cool stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean... Uh, space adventure in particular we've mm. mentioned is an, has been an anthem that's been used yeah. uh, for particularly the Cybermen. There's other races as well of alien monsters that have mm. been used, but I think they're most intrinsically linked in the public imagination with the Cybermen. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, when I think about Tomb of the Cybermen, I do think about space adventure. Yeah. I do I, think about yeah. the, the yeah. Cybermen emerging from their tombs to that yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. The fact that the covering over the little cells that they're climbing mm-hmm. out of is plastic, similar to Earthshock actually. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Which is yeah. a homage to I it. Think yeah. It is. yeah, yeah. And as they're climbing climbing down those steps it's mm-hmm. so cool yeah. it's it's a really great piece of music pretty easy to see why it's so loved that should have been the cliffhanger when the when the side man walks yeah. away from the honeycomb up towards you yeah i really thought it was going to end I there but too. i was gonna i remembered it wrong mm-hmm. something that's very new in this particular story the cybermats yeah, so we see them is, uh, occur over and again. I think if you cast your mind back to the James Corden, uh, the second James Corden adventure with Matt Smith, mm. um, closing time, yeah, we see the the revamped oh, uh, yeah. uh, Cybermats in there. But this is their first appearance on screen. Yeah. yeah. Um, Can I ask? You hate them, don't you? I, I wanna, hate them. First of all, what are they for? I was just gonna. If you had no, what do they do? What like, are they? What do they do? I think are they just a scouting device? I mean, I know they can attack humans too, and they can render them unconscious. Is that what they're for? Yeah, entrapment. Yes, like, no, there's two plot elements and one other element okay. that, that they serve a purpose for. The first one is obviously the way in which the Cybermen are able to uh, basically reopen the hatch uh, once they've been uh, closed back down there after the first mm-hmm. try. Um, and then the second... Okay, so you've got those shoots that sort of lead out from yeah, the yeah. underground. So, yeah, so yeah, so they're, the, they're the way in which they're able to sort of uh, Wait, get did, the hatch back they, open. Do the Cybermats throw the lever? No, but maybe they can. No, push no, no. What they do is no. What they do is is basically create enough confusion so that um, Klieg is able to reopen the um, the hatch and Simon mm. are able to come okay, back sure, out. Okay, sure, 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 okay. sure. Um, so. One, it's it's a sort of functional plot point. Two, right at the end, as the cyber controller oh. and Tobin are dueling over the doors, a little cyber mat runs yeah. out. Yes, and it's true. obviously, like what that. we're meant to think at the end is actually they are entombed, but they do live on. To quote Genesis of the Daleks, because mm. of course this one cyber mat has escaped and is still functional, mm. and so the inference is that as soon as they're gone, this little cyber mat's going to go back in and, and How can resuscitate. Can get back in? The doors are electrified. <laughs> Who knows? It's, it's like that bit actually at the end of the Evil of the Daleks where there's one Dalek light bulb after the you know mm. sort of explosion and, and sort of massacre of the Daleks that's just flashing and yeah. you just sort of think yes there's yes just yeah. that glimmer of hope it's yeah. a symbol. not dead after it's more of a symbol yeah. it I mean, is. it's exactly. not like yeah. uh, can you make a Cyberman out of a mm. Cyberman can the mm. Cyberman make another <laughs> you know what I mean it's, it's just it's, cyber, yeah. the cyber yeah. race lives on yeah. in some fashion sure. no matter how uh, you know extinguishable the light seems yeah. but also the third is that this was meant to be a toy that was meant to yeah. be marketable it's a marketable oh, see, toy now you right. sold me the other two I'm like yeah, you could probably do it without that Man, but, I remember I still actually remember the first time I saw one of the close up Cybermats in Tomb of the Cybermen and just privately thinking 
Man, they look crap. Of the googly Those eyes? Little, yeah, the, the felt teeth, whatever that well, is. They do is that have, cut bits of but the felt? Underside, like, they do have, like, the underside is like a woodlouse or a slater. You call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that was always quite yeah. creepy. I always found that creepy. The yeah. close-up of the eyes kind of looks a bit sea creature-y as well. Like it, mm. uh, yeah, they, are, they are kind of gross-looking. They look like a so, crap prop, I think. I like the segmented tails and the bit where they try to go up the yeah, um, yeah. go up the chute and they, the remote control operator is obviously like, come on, please work, please. And they just manage to scrape up there. There's a lot of stop motion as well. They sort of like shoot across the floor really quick it's like wow how did i like it when it, one of them comes friends. out of comes out of victoria's bag yeah, <laughs> I yeah, quite yeah. Like that. and um, with that perfectly scissor cut yeah. hole <laughs> yeah. yeah thumbs down side mats just um didn't need to exist uh, for any reason i don't know i uh, do think that they serve their purpose towards the end there as the glimmer of hope yeah i think that's cool i've never heard anyone defend the side mats and i'm quite pleased that you did <laughs> you swayed me yeah you've charmed your me. words <laughs> So let's get to this uh, bit of that doctor's characterization. Okay, I think he plays the part of an arch manipulator in the same way that McCoy did in Remembrance of the Daleks. And I know you disagree because, um, like, he's he's observing and kind of seems to be one step ahead, and he's sort of already yes, like he does, and he's fixing things when people aren't looking. Someone's doing something at a control panel. He comes in and exactly. hits a switch. But the, what what Troughton is as an actor is someone who works at the periphery in in the sort of uh, corners of the of the room and on the set, flicking switches. Mm. and, you know, setting little things up. And, mm. you know, his, his facial expressions are, are sort of key in that as well as an actor. He's very much the archetype of the trickster, someone who is able to sort of um, move the plot along by being manipulative and sneaky and a little bit funny and someone who is underestimated by everyone else in the room. Because well, he's a, he sort of comes off as a bumbling clown a lot of the, the time. The cosmic hobo. Sure. Exactly the doctor right. always does, though. He yeah. always gets underestimated by the people You're in the right. room. Yeah, but particularly this scruffy, short, um, you know, space... Um, hobo that we see with Trout and I. Th- but there's uh, there's parts where it just seems like he stuffs up because he's um too clever for his own good. Like where they're trying to open the the tomb, mm-hmm. and I I would I would mm. guess that he well he knows the Cybermen and he doesn't want them to open the tomb, right? But no, he but he can't help. He but passed give, that knowledge to Cleeg. Why he can't does he do that? Give him the knowledge. I think it's because he wanted to show off and he couldn't help but be clever. That's why. That- I think that's a facade. I think that's mm. that's Trout acting and the Doctor sort of um saying no no don't do it when in fact he absolutely wants them to do it so that he can get in there because what we see. Here here is the doctor seeing that the, tomb, that the Cybermen in their tombs can be buried forever, and this is his chance to re- eradicate them for all time. I'd like to think that's I think I think true. that's I think that's why he allows mm. or enables Klee to open the hatch, why he allows the events to proceed as long as they do. And I think a lot of people read the Tomb of the Cybermen in that way that it's mm. the doctor needlessly and senselessly leading people to their deaths <laughs> and committing a mistake just mm. so that he can basically you know close the doors again. But I think. The key scene for me is at the end, prior to them closing up the door, mm. Tobin closing the door, mm. is the way in which he, he, he makes a joke of it, but essentially he rearranges the configuration or the circuitry. Yeah, so it's so random. That no, exactly. Yeah. So that nobody, no matter how logical or how clever or how informed, are ever able to open the tomb again. But couldn't he have just done that without going into the tomb? Because the writing is quite messy in other parts of the yeah, story. Yeah, I, I think he might be giving it too much credit. But I like mm. to think that's true, though. I, I think even at the end of the day, in that last scene, Kip Hedler and, and Jerry Davis are clever enough to say, oh, okay, this is why we're doing it. And, and there's that line about the randomness of the of the circuitry mm. inserted at the end. In between, yeah, it's a hell of a mess, <laughs> yeah. and there's a sort of uh, a nonsensical nature to it, but I think... What about that scene towards the end where um, they get the control... You know, they actually help the controller into the recharging chamber. Yeah. You know, we're thinking, why is he doing that? Because he's actually saying, I think it's best. I think it's best that we help him. So then they tie him up, and the whole reason for that was uh, that we had to find a way to trap him in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Why like, turn the revitalizer 
revivalizer on. You yeah. really shouldn't turn the revivalizer on because he just beat through the door. Yeah. Like, I think the the in text explanation is nonsensical. Mm. the The actual sort of uh, contextual explanation is that they need to have the cyber controller versus Topman at the end of the scene, and that's why he's allowed to break yeah, out. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think you're right about that. I, I like this idea, and I want to believe it. It's a nice idea, and I'm, yeah. that's about as far as I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's for a separate podcast. Um, the uh... yeah, it's called New to Arguments, <laughs> and there's no editing. <laughs> <laughs> that scene uh in the in the actual underground tombs where you know after after the controller utters the lines you shall be like us when they pounce on the humans and it's just a free-for-all and you've got yeah. all the droney gurgling of their voices going on like a weird like oh, it's like that. a beehive again I like it's, yeah, it's, oh, yeah. Yeah. i it found was... them i found them quite looming and and um oppressive in well tomb of the sidemen as a whole but in that scene in particular i, I found that quite harrowing it I was think for the most part it's, it's well directed and it does seem that these seven foot tall silver giants are about to you know destroy these these tiny puny earthlings yeah but then there's moments like uh there is a there is a fight sequence where tobin lives the cyber controller. Oh w. wow! Um, there's a bit yeah. before where cyber doesn't the cyber controller pick up Toberman on those uh, yeah. really oh, obvious yeah. okay. and it's obvious because you they're shooting on the film at yeah. Ealing, and it's sure. just like it wouldn't have shown up on video. I am yeah. so thankful that it's in. Yeah, yeah. Me too. So uh, yes, sweet dogs. If you don't realise that, you can actually see the strings connected to Toberman's uh, no one pants. Miss that. Yeah, <laughs> in the you tomb. won't miss it. And then, like you say. Uh, does Toberman pick up the cyber controller later? And yeah. Ch- yeah. And chucks a fairly bad dummy against well, the controls. You know, the head actually comes off the dummy as well. It's sure just like, oh, that. wow. Mm. It's like, guys, <laughs> not enough time for take two. Yeah. Come on. Like, yeah. And they're like, well, cool. He's dead. We threw him across the room. That probably killed him. Yeah. yeah. And then he comes back and he's looming there. Yeah. That bit yeah. where they, they just turn around and he's already standing up. Yeah. 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 Terrifying. yeah that was cool. Great was direction, cool. isn't yeah. it? It just sort of it pans and it was mm. just right there in front of them, yeah. barring. It's great because you've got to have that one last little jump. You've got to have that one mm-hmm. last yeah. little like yeah. nail-biting moment. You know, like everything else has been tied up. It can't be just as easy yeah, as wiring re- up the tomb and then leaving. Re-electrified again. everything. Be, yeah. And then there's that last bit where they yeah. close him in the doors. It's- okay, so now we've got the half-cybernized Toberman pitting his strength against the cyber controller. Yeah. One side of the door each. This is Toberman's great sacrifice, I guess. Mm. This is death of the giant. Mm. They're each pushing. Toberman eventually wins, knowing, of course, that once he shuts those doors... The doctor's electrification is going to kick in and he's going to die. Mm. What I love is that shot of Toberman falling on the outside of the doors oh, and the controller falling on the, the inside. Yeah, they yeah. both fall to their death, great. writhing in pain. At the same time. Yeah. It's like a mirror yeah. image of yeah. uh, machine versus man. Yeah. It's great. I'm, I'm very <laughs> conflicted about this final sequence okay. because it is particularly dramatic and it is poignant in terms of a send-off if you like or sure. a death for for Tobin as you say yeah but but I don't think he has any agency yeah in mm. actually committing the act and this is hugely problematic because we've already seen the way in which Tobin is represented as yeah. a mute black strongman yeah. mm. who is a servant to you know Kaftan who is herself um, you know um, represented as 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 an other of mm. Middle Eastern um, extract mm-hmm. sure so you know that sort of racial undertone that sort of is really problematic in previous kids peddler and jerry davis stories mm. again probably comes to its fore here in that moment for me yeah you like it's, it's too twofold problematic because it's it, there's one thing if he's doing it deliberately mm-hmm. then it's plays playing and they're playing him into the stereotype of the noble savage exactly um, but uh, if he's got no agency which is what i think they're also saying uh, that it maybe it's just because he's been cyberized but it, he's too stupid to realize that that's he, right he'll be electrified and killed yeah could i just say uh, steve you mentioned earlier um <sighs> unnoticed the cyber mat that uh, t- that get, manages to escape oh, yeah, yeah. So the last shot of the story is that Cybermat trailing along through the sand back towards mm-hmm. the tomb. Now, Where what we do we see? 
Everyone's yep. gone home. Yeah, the, the, the last what ones. Have they left to, the last ones to leave. The doctor and Jamie yeah. are like, well, uh, they Toberman's, left behind Toberman's corpse. Toberman's yeah. corpse in the sun. Like, yeah. well, what were they? What was their like? They showed it quite clearly. They, they did. They did. It's not like an accident. I, I think it was meant to be like a. It was meant to be like a. See, see what's happened. There's what. There's no talk of. We've got to take his body back to Earth. We've got to give him some sort of honourable death, like, yeah, like a funeral. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's a kid that, show. They don't want to show. They don't want to be like. Well, we've got to bury this man now. Well, like, maybe that's something they don't want to do. But then no, why show they just show him why, why show him dead corpse? on the ground. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know they could, we could have gotten away with not having that last shot, mm-hmm. and and it sort of being assumed that they would have taken him with them, and it never really being a. Thing. I would have assumed that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You get the feeling they're taking the other bodies back to the um yeah, yeah. To the rocket, right? Yeah, uh, but they just leave Tobin there. Mm. Yeah, um, thanks BBC Casual Racism. Thank you. Yeah, we'll come back to that in another story. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Oh. Gentlemen, is it already that time? Can you please check your space <laughs> time watches? Uh, <laughs> It's time to play a little game called Crackers or Clangers. (laughs) So this is where we go through each of the cliffhangers from the episodes of Tomb of the Cybermen. Were they Crackers? Were they Clangers? (laughs) Gentlemen, let's have a look at Tomb of the Cybermen. Okay. Cliffhanger episode one. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the hypnosis freakout wall with the Cyberman dummy yeah. shooting the crewman. <laughs> yeah, right. So we've got smoke pouring from his clothing as yeah. he collapses in agony and dies. The audience is led to believe that this is a Cyberman that's done this. Yeah. We yeah. don't find out until episode two that it's a dummy. It's kind of evident from the special effects well, of the prop the, that it's a dummy. You see the gun on his back that, that shot him, right? They do. They show yeah. that, which is odd because... But they don't see it. Like the people No, they the don't, see, don't it. see it. No, you, I, you, I think, though, that we're seeing that through the fact that we've seen it ten times or more, right? Mm. If that's a cutaway, no. you don't know whether it was it's a quick behind one. him or in front of him. I think it's... Uh, it is a close-up. You're quite right. Yeah. And it is very quick. Yeah. So, for, not, on a first viewing... You're quite right. I don't know that you would pick up on that. I don't that. think so. Yeah. It's not in the Cyberman's hand. Yeah, so the Cyber Dummy kind of looks like a dummy. So, you know, but hey, what? It's 67. Yeah. People at home, kids at home are going to be like, Cyberman! Cyberman! Yeah, and That's it's the also idea. another classic Doctor Who trope of the full reveal of the monster at yeah. the end of part one. Yeah. And it's um, nasty the way... Is it Hayden? Nasty the way... Hayden, he yeah. Dies. It's really... Yeah. The smoke, it's great. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was, that was the bit that really got me with this cliffhanger. People just have smoke pouring from their clothing. <laughs> mm. Pretty gruesome. I think it's a... What do you reckon? I'm going with Cracker. I think it's a Cracker. Yeah. I'm going with a Cracker. I'm yeah. going with a Cracker. I mean... The, My you... only clang <laughs> is the is the dummy shaking its way across, you know, as it... Uh, that's it. That's okay. it. Uh, Steve, Cracker or Clanger? Yeah, Cracker, definitely. Okay, great. Okay, so we're, in, uh, we're all in agreement there. <laughs> Episode 2. The glorious thawing and reveal of the Cybermen from their tombs. With the chilling voice of the Cyber Controller... So, okay, for me, this coupled with the music of Space Adventure mm-hmm. all goes hand in hand. This one, I'm going on the record, is my favourite cliffhanger of the whole story. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I want to hear the other two first. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Reserving judgment. I like that. But it's I great. Like I really, I, I swear to God, I always remember the cliffhanger being them climbing down from the honeycomb and the one side man walking towards the camera. And yeah, that was then, the end. Yeah. That's what I thought it was, no, but it wasn't. No. Yeah. Okay. May, well, maybe this is it. The element That's of playing <laughs> here is that they didn't cut it quite soon enough yeah. because I think but, that would have been far more effective if it was just the zoom in to But the, do you know what, though? I think if you think about the fact that the, the, the way that we've already talked about this, that sort of droney robotic yeah. Cyberman yeah. voice 
is a kind of a good way to end it as well with with a memorable line too. yeah they, they okay. released the yeah. cyber controller as soon as yeah. he says you belong to us i was like i am sold that's yeah, an amazing yeah, line yeah, yeah, they yeah. never say anything really like that they never say no. you belong to us mm. yeah they're not you know, like four words brilliant line I love yeah it. yeah um, I, I also really love uh you know that we've got that whole sort of ceremony that goes with releasing. unveiling the cyber controller yeah. sort of they sort of stand in that semicircle cool. around yeah and, then they, and they let him out and he and he's crouched down in there and he and he rises yeah, and he comes yeah. out he's, huge. he's great yeah. Yeah. he's got his testicle head it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And cracking on. Episode three. Klieg appears in the doorway and shoots his cyber gun at what we are to presume is the doctor because someone calls out, watch out, doctor. Mm. Most ingenious, doctor. Now let's see what you can do against this. Watch out, doctor! Spoiler alert, he shoots an American instead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I, I think it could have worked, but the the framing of it is too tight on Klieg, and mm. so what you have is a very short, uh, sharp cut to him. Mm. It's too tight. He and there's a long pause. presses a gun, it. and there's a long pause. There's a pause. bit of a pause, yeah. yeah. But the idea that he shot the doctor, the idea yeah. is great. The execution, so it's yeah. halfway in between. I, okay. I, I remember seeing the, that scene and being like, oh, they waited too long in the edit, and then yes. he fires it. And I was like, I actually quite liked it. So yeah, okay. uh, I don't know if I can go for full cracker. Right. Maybe a clacker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Episode four, and so, which we've already covered, of course, everybody leaves to go home. Alone, Cybermat in the sand as the camera tracks to Toberman's corpse left in the dirt. He's <laughs> rot. Is Toberman's corpse the final shot? Is yeah. that the last thing you see? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why you would end on that either. I mean, maybe it's to say, mm. wow, this hero saved us and look, uh, oh, ye mighty have fallen and mm. he's noble and wonderful, mm. but mm. bury him. I think the, you know, the, the cliffhanger being like the noble sacrifice, the intent, again, is, is somewhat halfway decent, but yes. the execution... Mm the sort of overtones that sort of come with it. Yeah. uh, It's just... Uh, Obviously, uh, episode two is my favourite. I was just um, trying to keep you in suspense. Uh, Episode two is my favourite. It's great. Yeah, I'll go with that. Oh, wow. Okay, we're all in agreement. It's an iconic scene in the history of Doctor Who anyway. I just wanted it to cut a few seconds before. I love Testicle Head (laughs) and his his proclamations. Yeah. See, now, if they just had a shot of Testicle Head on on the ground, that would have been great. So, Colin, you chose this one. Yeah. Uh, why should we watch this? Why should anyone watch this? This is just from my own personal mm. experience. So, this is the first VHS I ever bought. Mm-hmm. I was young and impressionable. Yeah. It was very new to Doctor Who. At this point, it was Colin Baker for me that I watched with Dad because he just happened to be on the screen at okay. the time. Dad was more familiar with Doctor Who than I was. After that, I guess, also the five Doctors. So, I had a bit of an idea uh, of the fact that there yeah. were other actors who played the Doctor. Tomb of the Cybermen is actually the story that hooked me. This yeah. is the one that got me in. So this oh, is wow. actually this is actually my personal entry point wow. into classic Doctor Who. Okay. So I'm really happy that we were all in agreement hmm. to do this one. Definitely. So obviously rewatching has brought back a flood of memories of what I used to mm, feel mm. watching this story as a young teen. <laughs> but also a greater understanding of just why I was so taken with it in the first place. (laughs) With years comes wisdom. You've got the phenomenal score, which we've talked about. We've talked about the casting. We've talked about the amazing sets and the story itself. It's a proper space adventure. (laughs) (laughs) When I think of good old school sci-fi, I immediately think of Tomb of the Cybermen. 
I see it in my mind's eye and I hear it in this score. Yeah. yeah. I actually genuinely do. Whenever I think of 60s sci-fi, it's one of the, in my head, it's two minutes of Yeah. It's one of those yeah. things that shows how much music plays a part in, in your memory. Yeah. That's true. Makes you remember these things. I always think of the Lone Tombs in the rock face. Yeah. yeah. Quarry. I always think Great of that. Set. Yeah. So this is the story that for a long, long time convinced me that Patrick Troughton was my absolute favorite doctor. Yeah. And that was before I became accustomed to all of the differences and eccentricities that each actor would bring to the role and make them all so good in their own rights. And I eventually did come to the realization that I could probably never choose just one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same. For a time, it was Troughton. Yeah. Yeah. And it was this story that did it. Yeah, right. It's a fun story, for one, but it's such a great idea. Like, it's mm. that classic um, going into an ancient tomb, like going into the yeah. the Aztecs or the or the Egyptian pharaohs. Yeah. But it's um, it's not, you know, dusty old bones and stuff. It's um, no. an ancient metal menace. Yeah. 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 Futuristic. Absolutely. It's um, ancient futuristic. It's like it's futuristic stuff, but it's yeah, old damn. stuff. Absolutely yeah. right. There's a sort of mythology to it. Even though it's set in the future, there's this idea that these are, are beings who are, you know have an incredible history yeah. as a menace throughout the universe. The menace aspect is what gets me about this story. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of conceptual horror, the idea of the implicit, the, the understated... Yeah understood but not shown horror there's some fantastic sequences where the cybermen you know rear out of the the hatch yeah. or, or the, the you mm. know the, the sequences actually sort of as the the tombs melt and, the, and they they thaw out yeah. which are incredible but for me there are there's just that sort of in, inherent sense of doom about this story mm. and that's what i particularly think about when i think mm. about team of the cybermen this this idea that there's an ancient horror down there yeah. for god's sake don't touch it yes and absolutely that's what really gets me about this one it's also one of those best things it's one of the one of the best Cybermen stories just because it really presents them as like cold mm. implacable mm-hmm. unbeatable yeah. and yeah. ancient yeah. and terrifying yeah. rather than some bumbling yeah. guys trying to <laughs> trying to sort some something out they're not really sure about it's just great and it's great and we say this every every time i know mm. but it's like a great example of the period if you want to yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. if you want to get the full range the full gamut of doctor who of classic who and you want to sample each of the doctors it's very accessible mm. uh, it's a great fun story dan i don't wait. Do have an under good authority that Tomb of the Sidemen is also Crispin Glover's dad. This will never get old. I can take it. I can take it. Um, actually, I got a question for Clive. Clive, are you Crispin Glover's dad? <laughs> okay. Any more? Any more? Colin, in a so, way, in a way, we're all Crispin. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. All right, so we've got uh, a particular thank you to make. Indeed. Big time. For the use of the incredible cover art, which you're probably seeing on your iPhone at the moment, Sweet Dork, of the Tomb of the Cybermen cover, mm. except it isn't quite the Tomb of the Cybermen mm. cover that was initially printed in the 1978 original publication of the Tomb of the Cybermen novelization. Mm. It's a redone version using this time the correct Cyberman I, model. I find this amazing. This it's is incredible. Alistair Pearson, who again has come through very kindly to say, yes, here, by all means, you can use it, guys. Um, so the original was done by... It's Jeff Cummins, and but the thing is he used the Cyberman from yeah. The Invasion, the other second Doctor Cyberman story that we yeah. keep talking about. Yeah. So it's a later yeah. model. So what's happened is that Alistair Pearson has gone back and, and redone the era-appropriate target mm. look and feel with... The correct Cyberman. Very faithfully and very lovingly. Beautifully done. With respect to the original. Yeah. Thank you, Alistair. So thank you, Alistair. And thank you to Clayton Hickman for Mm. for setting that up for us. It's very kind of you and I really appreciate it. Every episode I get to to Photoshop our 
dumb logo onto these beautiful <laughs> things and trying to fit it in without without degrading the original because and I get, I get to have a really close look at these things I mean I've seen them all so many times as a kid mm. but getting really close up to them you really get to appreciate like how beautiful most of them are yeah, yeah. this one's stunning yeah. and then before you rudely stamp our logo <laughs> yeah, over the so top of very it very rudely yeah. thank you to all the artists who are so understanding of that yeah, as well. thank you for letting us <laughs> oh good and you do a good job on the logo it looks good <laughs> thank you We've also got a couple of shout-outs this month going on from Dan's glaring yeah. error. Sweet dogs, we, you may or may not have heard us mention it, and particularly me mentioning uh, during this episode, the fact that uh, Dan doesn't seem to know who Crispin Glover's dad is. I regret nothing. We put it in there deliberately so that you could uh, pick out. And that, we're doing that so that I don't have to admit my mistake, yeah. which is a small price to pay for delegitimizing uh, most of the rest of what we say. So Steve, our, who also acts as our marketing manager, very... Very quick thinking. Uh, he put out a little thing on Twitter saying... I basically said, if someone can uh, tweet us and say what the glaring error was, we'll mm. shout you out on the on the podcast. And here we are, true to our word. We had two. We had A.M. Moore, Mr. Moore, who got it correct. Mm. But the first person to actually pick it up, mm. Fox in Dots, a.k.a. my sister Lisa and future guest future on guest. this Man, podcast. And she was so quick, too. Oh, I was, minutes. I, I was on the Twitter feed when it happened. And <laughs> really? she was literally, bang, she was just on it, hey. So, <laughs> she knows the stuff. So, Fox in Dots, you have won a Crispin Glover headshot signed so. by all of us. Yeah. As is that. Yeah. I'm very proud of my son, son Colin from Nude Who. <laughs> and so on. So, yeah. And you know what, Dan? Sunglasses emoji. <laughs> We've also got some love to share this oh, month. Yeah. Um, thank you particularly to our Australian brethren, 42 to Doomsday and the Doctor Who show for um, mentioning us in their most recent... Great podcast. Episodes. Yeah, um, yeah. The most really recent good. monthly episodes. Mm. Lads, thanks so much. It's always nice to, to share the love. Um, mm. If you haven't subscribed to them, uh, Sweet Dog, 42 to Doomsday and the Doctor Who show. Mm. And a, a big hi to Eric Stadnick, who just wanted to shout out on the podcast. Oh, yeah, he did too. He demanded it. He demanded it as an entitled, entitled fan. fan. Entitled so there fan. you go, Eric. Hashtag entitled fan. I'd actually like to start a trend. Sweet dogs. Hashtag entitled fan. And thanks to JR Southall from the Blue Box podcast for having me on uh, alongside Nathan from FTE and David from Behind the Sofa to talk about um, Moffat's season. So that's back there. Moffat's yeah. um, tenure at Nuhu. Oh, so and so next month we're already at next month. So what are we what are we doing? I think it's one of Coles again. You know, it's very Beautiful. odd. Uh, two in a row. We are doing Day of the Daleks. Ah, okay, classic now, Pertwee. Classic Pertwee. And I'm really am at home with Pertwee and Unit in the seventies. I don't know why. Mm. I just love that Unit family. Yep. I just love Katie Manning. Yeah, sure. I, this, last yes. time Terror of the Autons was more of a. We had actually some great stuff. Roger Delgado was the master. Yeah, the master was there. His yeah. first story. So it's a bit of a different Pertwee though. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got time traveling gorillas. We've got the Daleks. We've got the Unit family. We've That's got John Pertwee. We've got Katie Manning. We've got a special guest. Uh, uh, very good, yeah, yeah. A very good friend of mine is going to be joining us next month for Day of the Daleks. Dude. He loves Day of the Daleks. He also this loves. It's going to be so much fun. <laughs> yeah, it really is. He's someone who used to join us in our early viewings of Doctor Who quite yeah. often. He's oh. going to be listening to this right now. Uh, it, he's been very patient. It's your story. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Can't wait. You can buy Tomb of the Cybermen on DVD from BBC Online, or you can buy the episodes on iTunes. You can follow us here at New to Who on Facebook and Twitter at New to Who Podcast, or even email us at newtohopodcast at gmail.com. 
All New To Who podcast episodes can be found to stream on our website, www.newtowho.com, and you can also click subscribe on iTunes. We hate goodbyes, so until next time, I'm Colin. I'm Stephen. And I'm Dan. And New To Who, we'll see you next month. Bye.